John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hi, everyone. As most of you know, in addition to the regular show, John and I record what we call Cinephile Shorts every week for our supporters on Patreon, and we wanted to give you a small sample of the great conversations we've been having lately. One patron asked John and I what kind of people we were in high school and what were some of the most important experiences of our formative years. We discussed Martin Scorsese's criticism of streaming video and how those services are weakening the importance and visibility of what he calls true cinema. Another patron was interested in the topic of student films and our experiences with student filmmakers. Finally, we have a very challenging and complicated conversation about a very challenging and complicated topic. The issue we discussed was the controversial film Cuties and the portrayal of underage sexuality in TV and film. Now, this was a tough one, and John and I often struggled to find the right way to express ourselves. But the fact is, topics like that shouldn't be easy. But having the conversation is important, and I think we had a really good one. So we hope you enjoy this small sample of our Cinephile Shorts. And if you want to hear more, all you have to do is support the show on patreon.com slash the Cinephiles. That's Cine-Files with an F, where you can also suggest topics for our shorts, get advance notice of upcoming movies, have access to combined versions of our multi-part episodes. The combined Godfather 2 is almost seven hours long. And you can even guarantee that one of your favorite films will appear on an upcoming episode of the Cinephiles. All that and more at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. But for now, we hope you enjoy this compilation of some of our favorite shorts. And we'll be back next week with another great film on the cinephiles. Hello, cinephiles, and welcome to another edition of Cinephile Shorts. I am here with my trusty partner, John Roca. Hello. <laughs> and this suggestion comes from Luke Leeson, who Luke Leeson is the guy who's been helping us out with social media yeah. for, it's been a year now. Yeah, a year. He's been doing it. Thank he you, Luke. is awesome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and his suggestion for a cinephile short, he says, I'm watching the wonder years with my kids, which is a show I love by the way. Um, and he says, they are asking me what I was like in high school. 
What were you guys like back then? Any amusing anecdotes to share? John, what were you like in high school? Uh, I My high school experience is separated into two separate blocks. Uh, freshman, sophomore year, and junior, senior year. That's essentially, and maybe that is for most people listening to us. I don't know. But for me, that's certainly how I remember high school. My freshman uh, and sophomore years are full of a lot of bullying. I was uh, overweight. I had a bowl haircut. I couldn't pick up a girl or talk to a girl to save my life. Uh, and it was a terrible experience. Super nerdy, doing theater, you know, trying to figure out what I'm going to do in, in high school, wearing like light blue dress pants to school with a light blue polo. This is and having my mom at times pick out my clothes. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, there was a time way back when where your mom would pick out your clothes <laughs> when you went to high school as a freshman or a sophomore. So super nerdy. And then, of course, as I've said before, in a number of other shows, I had that really hard experience with these bullies in, during my sophomore to junior year. And my father got me weights. I got a 10 and we got a 10 speed bike and I started working out and that just completely changed who I was as a person and came back in my junior year, more in command of who I was more of wanting to state my case of who I was. And I did more acting. I got more friends. I certainly dated more and had that experience uh, and felt more uh, powerful in high school in my senior year as well. So those were my experiences, but littered throughout were some fantastic times with my friends who some I'm still friends with today uh, and uh, some great uh, fun performances on stage, being in musicals, being in plays, directing a play um, uh, and getting involved with speech and drama and the modern United Nations. Yes. Super fucking nerd all the way to the end with modern United Nations won some awards there. So my high school, though it was at times tough the first couple of years, overall, I felt like it's kind of set the foundation for how I would want to achieve things going forward in my life. What about you, Steve? It's, it's funny. There's a lot of elements that are really similar. Mm. So definitely there's a difference between freshman, sophomore, and junior, senior year. Yeah. Um, I was really lacked social skills. I was very kind of nerdy and isolated coming out of junior high. Um, didn't know how to talk to people. Certainly didn't know how to talk to girls. Uh, I was a theater kid. So freshman year I was in theater class. I think, I think I was in a play every year from second grade until senior of college. Wow. Like I never went a year where I wasn't acting in something. Okay. And uh, so, I, and, and as you probably know from high school, a lot of dudes, not a lot of guys auditioned for the play. So it's kind of easy to get in. <laughs> yeah, very true. To play as a guy. So I was acting, but, and I was, I think socially I was kind of a floater, okay. which is I, I was bullied when I was younger, but I wasn't right. really bullied in high school. I, and I was sort of kind of a theater kid, but not cool. Okay. Not one of the cool theater kids, <laughs> kind of a nerdy kid, but yes. not one of the really, uh, you know, president of the chess club or anything i kind of knew some cool people but i wasn't of the i just kind of floated around yeah and tried not to have anyone pay too much attention to me you know <laughs> um and then things did change uh junior senior year uh when i became friends with first jeff johnson and then with other mm. people kind of had this group of friends some of whom I'm, I'm still with friends today yeah uh and it's funny so so uh i uh luke asked if we had any amusing anecdotes and, and, and I was like, God, what do I have amazing anecdotes? And then I went, <laughs> oh, yes, I do. So here, here are two linked stories. I'll try okay. to tell fairly quickly. So junior year, uh, we, I had gotten my driver's license and I had, it wasn't my car, but I had access to a 
Toyota Corolla, 1981 Toyota Corolla station wagon. And so I was the first one to drive. So I, we drove to Berkeley with my friend, George Shelton, and uh, who was a sophomore, and this girl, Chrissy Radzikowski, hmm. who I had a big crush on. And maybe there's someone else in the car, I don't know. So we drive to Berkeley, we eat some Blondie's pizza, maybe <laughs> we got some ice cream or something, and then we drive home and it's, you know, nine o'clock at night or whatever it is when you're 16 or 17. Yeah. And George says, hey, why don't you drop Chrissy off first and then and then drop me off? And I'm like, sure, I want to, you know, I'm going <laughs> to drop you off first. Don't cock block, son. <laughs> He's like, no, no, why don't you drop? Because then you could circle around back and drop me. I'm like, George. And drop you off first. So I drop him off. He lived right near a street that was called, I think, Mar Vista or Mara okay. Vista. And then I go to Chrissy's house, park my red station wagon in front of the house, yeah. and I go, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna like ask a girl out. Never asked a girl out before. Go up to her and in my totally fumbling, I kind of like you. And maybe I was thinking that sometime you and I could. I don't know if you wanted to, but if you didn't want it to, that's be okay. And <laughs> I think that it's for like 10 minutes, she says, no, I just want to be friends because that was, you know, pretty typical for me. Uh-huh. And then as I'm walking back to my car, a police car comes screeching oh. around the corner, sirens, flashing lights, pulls over, grabs me, slams me against the car and says, what were you doing? You're driving like a crazy person. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? And they say, they say, where did you come from? And I go, well, I was in Berkeley. And then I drove, what streets were you on? I was like, I was on Tiburon Boulevard. And then I was on Paradise Drive, blah, blah, blah. And they said, you didn't go anywhere else like Mar West. Now, George lived right near Mara Vista. Yeah. And I went um, and, it, you know, I was freaked out. And yeah, I went, uh, I guess. And they're like, oh, now you guess. So now you're talking about it. And they go, you're under arrest. And I go, what? And they put me up against the car. They handcuffed me. Holy crap. They say, and I say, what? I, for what? And they said, for reckless driving. We saw you going 60 miles an hour on Mar West. And I look up as I'm being, you know, they put my, their hand on my head and put me in the car. Yeah. And I look up and there is Chrissy's mom and her whole family <laughs> are watching me be arrested. And then. Um, and then they find, and they were really just trying to scare the crap out of me. And they, you know, they kind of yelled at me and I said, no, I was, I was, I was here. I was talking to this girl, like, what's her name? And I went, Chrissy. And they said, what's her last name? And her last name's Radzikowski. Right. I couldn't remember what her last <laughs> name was. They're like, oh, so you're talking to some girl and you don't even know her last name. I'm like, yeah, I don't know her last name. Wow. And, and, and they said, well, if we go and knock on this door and they don't know who you are, you're going to jail. And I'm like, okay. And so the police went and knocked on the Radzikowski's door, talked to Chrissy's mom. Right. And then they come back and they say, all right, just this time, we're going to let you go with just a speeding ticket or reckless driving ticket. But they didn't take me in. So then I go, okay. And they write out the ticket and now I'm driving home. Yeah. And at that moment, I realized I'd never even been on the street that they were talking about. Right. Is that they had seen another red car. I had been talking to Chrissy Razakowski for 10 minutes. Yeah. They'd seen another red car, followed that car, and then and then seen my red car and thought it was me. Right. So they so lost then, that other red car and thought you were the red car. Exactly. Wow. So then I get home and my parents are sitting up in bed because the police have called them yeah. to tell them what I've been doing. And at that point, I'm like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. My dad calls up the police and we go back to the police department at two in the morning. Oh, my God. 
and 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 explain like this wasn't me and they they tear up the ticket and then and this i'm still angry my dad made me write a thank you note to the police <laughs> that's how straight and narrow my dad was to say thank you for letting me off for this wow. thing that i hadn't done wow. so that's part one of the story part two of the anecdote <laughs> uh-huh it's it's junior prom so who do i want to ask to junior prom chris chrissy Radzikowski. wow so I go to her and she's a sophomore and I'm a yeah. junior and she goes, well, we can go just as friends, but only if you get a date for George, the right, same right. guy who I had left off. And she, and I went, you, or, or, or no. Yeah. She, she went, if, if we can get a date for George. And then there's another junior whose name was Christine yeah. who we found and she didn't have a date. So she was George's date. Cause George was a sophomore. And I went with right. Chrissy Radzikowski get to the prom George and Chrissy are dancing a lot. Oh, damn. <laughs> then we go to, uh, we're going to spend the night at the beach to watch the sunrise because on the West Coast. Right. So we go out to the beach, we built a fire. We're sitting there. We got blankets and stuff. George and Chrissy disappear. And I'm left alone oh, with this damn. girl who I didn't know <laughs> all night. And uh, that was my first kiss. And that's my first girlfriend. Oh, wow. My first girlfriend came from us having George and Chrissy totally abandoned us. And both both of our dates abandoned us in junior prom. This is a when Harry met Sally situation. Uh, Yeah. uh, Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby absconded (laughs) in the taxi. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Didn't didn't work out as well. Oh, well. (laughs) So that's my high school amusing anecdote. Jeez, that's tough. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, a music anecdote. A lot of them involve, you know, uh, same thing, dating. A lot of them involve dating. So I don't know. I mean, like, because um, I mean, like, uh, as far as acting, I mean, I, I became an actor because I was I kind of wanted to be one in high school. And then they I was I remember that there was a Pirates Benzance audition and I remember standing by my locker and I was debating one way or the other. Do I do it or not do it? And I felt it was like the most important moment of my life at uh, 50 at 16, I guess, as I was a junior. And I was like, do I do it? Do I not do it? Do I not do it? Uh, and this my friend, Robert Doyle, I remember his name distinctly. He passed away uh, a few years after high school. I remember it distinctly. He was like, dude, you got to do it. At least take a chance. Come on, I'll see you in there. I know I'll see you in there. And I'm standing by my locker. It's something like out of a movie moment because, you know, I'm so fucking dramatic. I have the locker (laughs) open and I'm like touching the locker with my finger. Like, do it, do this, do it, do this. And then I go, if the buses leave by the time I'm done and the buses start to leave, because we had that uh, the buses were like under under the the, they were on the second floor down on Mm. the ground. So you could see the buses under the They're all lined up. And as soon as the school buses left, I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to do it. And I auditioned and I got into Pirates of Penzance. Robert did not. And so it's just so funny that he talked me into it. And this began my whole uh, acting experience in high school. Uh, you know, obviously, I walked away from it for a few years when I was in the military and then going to that first trip through college and then came back to it. Uh, and so it was something that always stayed inside me. But if I, I think if I hadn't gone to that audition, I might have had a completely different life, like a completely different sliding doors right. kind of life where I went off and did more of international relationship relations and studied politics, studied all of that more because that was also something that was a very big passion of mine 
in high school with Model United Nations. I was very, very into Model United Nations. I like the idea of negotiation. I like the idea of, of um, you know, talking about these issues and exploring poverty and exploring nuclear missiles and exploring what's going on in the world and how we're affecting the world with the policies that we implement in other countries. And so I had interest in all of that, but in the end, I didn't. I will say this, and I guess I should, um, I guess this is a story to tell. Uh, and it is my first time uh, that I ever um, had sex. I guess I had it in high school. I was a 50, this is, again, this is that transition time between sophomore yeah. and junior year. I'm working at a place called Job Lot Pushcart, and I'm a stock boy. Essentially, it's my first job yeah. ever. I'd gotten the per, you know, at my at where I was living in Virginia, at my age at 50, I had to get permission from my parents to work a job yeah. over the summer. So it was like certain hours you were allowed to work. I had a driver's permit, so I could drive my occasionally my mom or my dad's car to work at Potomac Mills Mall uh, there in Virginia. And I was working at a place called Job Lot, which was went extinct a few years later. But I was, uh, uh, I met a girl there. She was in her late teens, early 20s, if I believe correctly. She had a child. And I had told her I was 18 years old. I lied to her that I was 18 years old. I, I had been lifting. So I kind of radiated an older age. So you, you were 15 or 16? I, I was 15. I was 15, 15 and I had, I just was lifting. And so I radiated an older age by this time. Uh, and I was like coming into my own kind of speaking my, you know, my way and figuring out how to talk to women uh, or girls. <laughs> but so, uh, uh, yeah. So anyway, we get to uh, know each other. We start to see each other. And the whole time I'm just lying to her that I'm 18. Like I'm, I'm, I'm making excuses. I'm saying that I'm living at home because I'm looking for my own place and all this, this stuff. <laughs> At the same time, I'm friends with this, my friend, Chris, who is taking me out and staying out late till 2 a.m. against my parents' wishes. My dad and I were having the most terrible summer arguing with each other while I'm also lifting weights and doing all these kinds of things. There was a lot of rebellion, a lot of pushing back from the old ways of my life at that time. So um, but what happens is my mother finds out about this relationship. And this is the story. My mother finds out that I'm dating this girl. Uh, or this woman, I guess, because she's 1920. She's separated from her husband. She has, has a, a child. Kid. She has a child. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, uh, my mom goes to the store one day. And this is, this is why my mom is a piece of Iron Man. She don't fuck around. She's sweet as, sweet as candy, but she don't fuck around. Uh, and uh, she gets in the line of this woman's line because she's a cashier at the place I'm working in the back. She's the cashier. She gets in the line and uh, she does this whole song and dance with her about like, oh, hi. Yeah, hi, hi, hi. I don't know if you know me. I'm John's mom. And she was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yes, John, he's fantastic. Very nice to meet you. I've seen your house. You have a lovely house outside. She's like, yeah. Um, So do you know he's 15 years old? Totally outs me to her completely outs me to her and tells the whole thing. And uh, the girl, Michelle, she is just absolutely completely flabbergasted by this. She takes me home that night. And I had no idea this interaction happened. She takes me home that night before we get to my house, she pulls over and she tells me the whole story. And I just burst out crying. Cause I, cause I cared about her. I didn't want to lose her. I didn't weep or anything, but I just started crying. Like, no, you know, I care about you. Please don't. Blah, blah, blah. 
And she's like, do you understand? I could go to jail. This is statutory rape, what you put me in. It's statutory. I could go to jail. And so it was a whole thing that we wow. kind of talked about. And oh, we tried to date for another month. Uh, and uh, I guess I'll save this, the first time sex story for some other thing. But that was the story there in high school. Uh, and w- crazy thing, 20 years later, uh, when I had gone home one weekend I uh, for Christmas, I happened to run into Michelle 20 years later. Now at the, when we, when I had known her, she was like living with her mom with this child breaking out of this thing. It looked to me like she was just like in a dead end life of hers and was going to end up. She had put herself and gone back to school, gotten three degrees and was working for the department of Homeland security as one of the fourth or fifth people in line to be in charge of the department. Wow. Madness, absolute madness. Um, and it was so great to see her. And I saw her again subsequently uh, a few days later. We hung out, we had a great dinner. Definitely the chemistry was still there. You could tell we even talked about it. She was married uh with more kids at the time, but there was definitely that spark there. And you know, it would have been terrible to act on it, but it was nice to know that it was still there all those years later, but that both of us had kind of gone on with our lives and and it was a great thing to remember and talk about. And um, I don't know where she is now. We kind of lost touch after the last few years, but like it was great to have that memory with someone who ended up becoming uh, did something really positive with their lives and fought against what could have been a dead end life. They fought to achieve more. And that was a great. So, oh, that, yeah. that talk. I mean, that's a good amusing anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it certainly blows oh. my uh, losing virginity story away. No, no, no. Not, not even worth saying what I did want to say, but it's, it's from a while ago. It's yeah. crazy to me how different your, my backgrounds are yeah. and how similar our experiences are. <laughs> I went to model UN. I loved yeah. it. Like speech and debate. I did that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I had decided, cause I'd always want to be an actor. And then sort of in beginning of high school, I went, Oh, I'm never going to be that good, which is yeah. sad thinking about it now because I'd like, Oh, I could have been a certain kind of actor. I couldn't yeah. be, you know, Anthony Hopkins, but like, you know, I, I, I knew how to act, right. but, but what changed it was that's when I directed my first play. Mm. was my senior year in high school and it was a guy uh who is literally the most successful writer i know now yeah had written wow. a play his name's carl guideshek and he uh he wrote oblivion the tom cruise movie oh yeah he was the executive producer of uh of uh last resort that tv series he mm. created it um he's a producer on stranger things you know, I mean, wow. the guy, you know, he is a, a really great and really successful writer mm-hmm. and he had written this play and there was just this sort of like, I wish someone could direct this play. And I'm like, well, I'll, I'll direct it. Yeah. I never thought about directing. I never thought about writing. And if it, Carl hadn't done this and then I directed it and then we did it again at the Bay Area Playwrights Festival as part of like the festival. And suddenly okay. I'm like a director. Wow. And that's when I just realized that people like me could write something. <laughs> I would never have written anything if I hadn't done this thing with Carl. Right. You know, and so, and that sort of clued me in. Like I was as much as I still like acting. And if someone offered me yeah. an acting part today, I would go, yeah, sure. Yeah, right. But, but I was so much more comfortable directing. Like yeah. I just, it just made sense for me at that point. And if I hadn't, and then I went, but I'm not going to do it. I'm become a lawyer. I got into Berkeley. I'm political science major. I was going to do law and politics. And that was what I was thinking about. Right. But I also did some stuff at the drama department and, 
and then I did more stuff at the drama department and then I did more stuff and that I continued to do my poli sci stuff where I kind of was a good student, but I was never not at the theater. And by junior year of college, I was like, I've completed three quarters of the drama major. Wow. So I might as well become a double major, you know, and that because yeah. I just, you know, it's like it's, it's funny because we're working on Godfather stuff now. It's just just when I thought I was out, it pulled <laughs> me back. I just couldn't I could not do it. I had yeah. to have the I had to be part of creative things. I just yeah. had to be, you know, nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. That's a, a thousand percent a good thing, man. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, <laughs> So <laughs> you got your you got your money's worth there, kid. Whoever asked the question, you got it was Luke. Worth. Luke asked Luke. the question. Oh, that's so. right, Luke. It's been so long. We were talking about. It. I forgot. <laughs> so Luke, thank, thank you, Luke. We, we got into some good stuff, and thank you to all our patrons for all your support. We couldn't make the show without you. We love having these conversations with cinephile shorts. So put your suggestions in, and maybe yours will be the next topic we discuss on cinephile shorts. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cinephiles Shorts. I am one of your hosts here. I am the outlaw, John Roke, joined by my brother in film arms, uh, Steve Morris. Uh, and I have presented this. This, is, this isn't something that uh, any of the fans have suggested or any of the patrons have suggested, but this is something that came across uh, the wire here. And I wanted to, it came up right as we were recording another short, and I thought it'd be a great thing for Steve and I to discuss you know, we rarely get to dive into the concepts and theory of film that isn't connected to a film we're reviewing on the cinephiles. So this is fun uh, to do here. Martin Scorsese uh, just recently, this is based on a Martin Scorsese um, uh, essay he just wrote for the March 2021 edition of Harper's Magazine. Uh, he's uh, speaking about his love for uh, director Federico Fellini and his incredible work. It's titled Il Maestro. That's the name of the article. And Steve, I wanted to get your thoughts on his comments here throughout the article. So, and we're taking this from an indie wire synopsis of what he wrote in this essay. You know, he's talking about streamers and he does acknowledge that like without Netflix, there'd be no Irishman without Apple. He wouldn't be able to shoot killers of the flower moon with Leonardo DiCaprio, which he's doing now, but he writes quote, the art of cinema is being systematically devalued sideline demeaned, and reduced to its lowest common denominator by conceptual, sorry, by conceptualization of films as quote content. As recently as 15 years ago, the term content was heard only when people were discussing the cinema on a serious level, and it was contrasted with and measured against form. Then gradually, it was used more and more by the people who took over media companies, most of whom knew nothing about the history of the art form or even cared enough to think that they should. Content became a business term for all moving images, a David Lean movie, a cat video, a Super Bowl commercial, a superhero sequel, a series episode. It was linked, of course, not to the theatrical experience, but to home viewing on the streaming platforms that have come to overtake the movie going experience, just as Amazon overtook physical stores. Steve, you're writing a book on directing. You teach directing. What are your initial thoughts on Scorsese's comments here as he presents them? So I have i feel very much about the let's just start with the word content mm -hmm. uh i feel very much about the word content the way and i know we've discussed this that uh you sometimes feel about the word the talent go get the talent <laughs> yes there's a thing that sounds okay about it but is really commodifying in a way mm -hmm. and and i'm i mean it's funny because i haven't done these meetings in a while but i can't tell you how many meetings i had with some company that said we really need to accumulate content mm. and that is so insulting and because it's just like we have to fill a space mm 
Like we need to have material. We don't care if it's good material. We don't care what kind of material. We just want to fill it up with content. It's like, you know, you know, fast food pouring at you or just crappy toy, whatever it is, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And that I'm a hundred percent in agreement with Scorsese in this area Mm -hmm. that offends me. It really bothers me. It, just like if 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 someone said, you know, I need to build a a a, a, ki- a toy for kids. I don't really care what it is. Right. Or I want to make a kids TV show. I don't really care what it is. As long as it sells my toys, it's fine. Right. Well, that's why we get so much bad crap, you know. And we're continually overwhelmed by content. And I and I'm sure you've seen this. I mean, like I was dealing with. I had meetings with travel companies who wanted travel-ish content. I was at all these companies that don't really do film, but wanted to have some stuff, video online that they could sell. So yes, in this area, I agree. Yeah. Okay. And he goes further to say uh, that the packaging of all moving images as equitable content, quote, has created a situation which everything is presented to the viewer on a level playing field, playing field, which sounds democratic but isn't if further viewing is quote suggested by algorithms based on what you've already seen. And the suggestions are based only on subject matter or genre. Then what does that do to the art of cinema? Curating isn't undemocratic or elitist, a term that is now used so often that it's become meaningless. It's an act of generosity. You're sharing what you love and what has inspired you. The best streaming platforms such as the Criterion channel and movie and traditional outlets such as TCM are based on curating. They're actually curated Algorithms, by definition, are based on calculations that treat the viewer as a consumer and nothing else. Steve. Well, first of all, what is the cinephiles? Right. It is curated. It is. We're saying these are great films. You should watch them. I it's fine. There are things in what Scorsese said that I'm going to strongly disagree with. But yeah, but so far I'm with him because and, and well, here's where the point that I think he misses, which is that it's not that it's treating the us as consumers it's that these companies treat us as products because they make money off of advertising Mm -hmm. and so what they're trying to do is all they're trying to do is get you to stay on for a minute longer they're not trying to give you a profound experience in fact a profound experience you'll probably have and then you'll stop watching because you're done but if they show you more extreme things more intense things We'll always, just like we'll always go to fast food and sugar and candy and to eat those things rather than the healthy things, we'll always do it. And so they keep feeding us to us. And this is how the algorithms work. And this is, it's not just for film or for cinema. It's just dangerous in general because it continually pulls us. I mean, this is where, how you get QAnon. This is how you get all these crazy conspiracy conspiracy theories because the content keeps pulling us to more extreme content and not healthy content. So again, I'm with him. Well, I'm a little bit cynical on the comments that he's making here, Steve, because what he's essentially saying is the consumers have no uh, um, free will of choice. They're presented this, then therefore they're, you know, it's being pushed a certain way by the companies. He's very, um, how can I say this correctly? I don't want to, maybe I'll say smart, He's very smart in that he's not going after the ticket buyers. 
uh, or the viewers that would consume his content. He's very careful not to insult them. He's blaming these nameless, faceless companies that, by the way, he has done movies for. You Just because you say, now I recognize that I've worked for Apple and Netflix, it doesn't mean that you can go ahead and shit on Apple and Netflix and that it's okay. It's like saying, no offense, but your mom sucks. It's no, you, you just because you said no offense does not mean the next thing you say is okay for you to say and no one can take an issue with it. And I think he's being a bit self-preservationist by going after the faceless companies that are supposedly manipulating people. I curated my life. I did the research. I went after movies because I was interested in finding the greatest movies. I went to the library. I bought Premier Magazine. I went to... Human beings are capable of curating their lives, curating the movies they want to see. Uh, And the cinephiles... um, Section of society, Steve, has never been the overwhelming section of society. It's always been a smaller piece of the pie because we appreciate this medium that most people just kind of want to go someplace to lose their minds for a couple of hours and, and then get back to their daily lives. Those of us who are cinephiles look at films in a completely different way. And we're not the majority. We aren't. And I think that's what I what is underlying in his uh, in his thesis is this idea that somehow people are being pushed away from great content and are just uh, made to believe that Lawrence of Arabia is the same as a cat video, which I think is inherently false in my well, opinion. How good a cat video? I mean, is it really, <laughs> is it really cute? Can it light a match? I don't know. Is it the lawyer cat? Is it the lawyer cat? I mean, that's true too. Um, I think you've, you've put your finger on, the, the, this is where I start to I agree with much of what he's saying. And then I start to split off because right. so first of all, you are different. Like, like, you know, most people didn't do what you did or what I did and get obsessed about yeah. these films. That's not, that's or what not a lot normal. of our listeners did. Yeah. Right. But, but Martin Scorsese's different too. Mm-hmm. Like most people when they were kids, weren't going to see every movie they could find every Italian film, every, you know, all that stuff like he yeah. was doing. Most kids weren't like that. So they don't grow up to be Martin Scorsese and to be the curators for other people. And I think he's lumping a bunch of stuff together that isn't the same because I think, so first of all, I don't have a feeling of cinema as in what you would go see on a big screen in a movie theater is better than what you would see on a small screen. I think there is crap that you go see in a movie theater. And I think there is unbelievable artistry done for, for TVs, Mm -hmm. you know? So like, I think Netflix has put out like, you know, Queens Gambit was the most recent one, which was like, that was, you know, in my mind, that's cinema. Yeah. It was phenomenal filmmaking, great acting, great script, beautifully shot. The costumes are amazing. The sets are amazing. It was just really, really, really good. Mm-hmm. And so, like, saying this idea, and, you know, and there are great shows on Apple. There's great, you know, Ted yeah. Lasso's an amazing show. There's great that's shows great. on Amazon. They also put out a bunch of stuff that maybe isn't so good. But that's, that's no different, you know, in our last um, short, we were talking about, I don't know which one will come out first, but we are talking about uh, sequels and B-movies. Yeah, It's not like the movie studios weren't putting out tons of crap throughout mm-hmm. all this time. They were. Yeah. Where, I agree, where I agree with um, Scorsese is that one of the differences there was a time where getting to see the good stuff, like the special, the cinephile stuff was hard. 
Yeah. Because Citizen Kane didn't play anywhere for 20 yeah. years, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then you would hear there was a screening at some theater down in Brooklyn and you would go to see it and it would be a pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Or you'd go, you know, like you used to have to go to the record store and there was the guy at the record store and he would clue you into that really good indie band that nobody would ever heard of. Yeah. And that was really cool. Today, all things are available all the time. Yeah. There is so much media available and what happens it's because and this is where i agree the cat video is competing with lawrence of arabia (laughs) and more people are watching the cat video you know there's just absolutely mind-numbing crap that has been viewed 90 million times yeah so there if that's what he's talking about i agree with him if he's talking about problems with streaming services come on yeah, agreed. Agreed with you on that one. But that's always been the case, by the way. More people have seen Major League than have seen, uh, or Back to the Future, rather, than have seen Lawrence of Arabia. More people that have seen populist mainstream entertainment than have seen the classics like Lawrence of Arabia. That's the truth. And that's always been the truth. That's what. But, but, but wait, 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 wait. Hold, hold. This is where I disagree. Is okay. That- is that I agree with, I totally agree with what you said, but mm. the cat video is not Back to the Future. Back to the Future is a great movie. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I meant like, you, you know, know what like I mean? Mainstream entertainment, I guess is what I'm, okay, fine. Um, I don't know. What do you want to do? What would you think that is not, uh, there's gotta be a film that uh, everybody watches, but is not uh, considered in the same vein as oh, Lawrence sure. of Arabia. Well, That's sure. what I'm trying to get at. Films I, I, like I can, that. I could talk about you're a right. series. Back to that, the Future is totally a classic. You're right. I could talk about a series that you, but well, well, so two things. So That's first fair. of all, I will yeah. give you some films because it's movies that I know you love, but, yeah. but, but, but again, going back to the cat video, there is so much crap that mm. literally millions and millions people are watching these things all the time yeah. that are mind numbing and horrible. The mo- but there are also movies that are extremely popular that many people think aren't that good. And I know you're big fans of the Transformers movies. <laughs> you know, that's a perfect example of movies that yeah. have made tons of money. Yes. But that's but that's where I totally agree with you. That's always happened. There have yeah. always been crowd-pleasing, financially successful films that yeah. people saw more than Italian neorealism. Right. You know? Listen, it, we were the first nerds. I don't care what anybody says. Before Dungeons & Dragons, there were films. We were the first nerds. Sure. The nerds, the 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 caveman Neanderthal nerds were the film lovers. We created that little mini society of like 20 people to talk about films with. We had to find each other in crowds in colleges and high schools, in, in even uh, even in middle school, possibly. We had to find each other and yeah. uh, and you had to look at it. And it was you know, it was before DD, before all this other shit. It was that. It was that. And even back going back to the 20s and 30s, they had those little mini film society groups or critics groups. You know, they understood the nerddom of loving film. That is the to me, that has always been the foundational thing of nerddom is film loving first, in my opinion. Uh, and when he comes for this situation, he says, and, and I think, but what I think in the next quote is where I think Scorsese completely loses me because I don't understand. Anyone who can claim commerce over art, I mean, sorry, art over commerce in the film business. He says, in the movie business, which is now the mass visual entertainment business, it's always been that, by the way. The emphasis is always on the word business. Yes, it has always been on the word business. Always, yeah. And value is always determined by the amount of money to be made from any given property. In that sense, everything from Sunrise to La Strada 2001 is now pretty much rung dry and ready for the, quote, art film swim lane on a streaming platform. 
Those of us who know the cinema and its history have to share our love and our knowledge with as many people as possible. We have to make it crystal clear to the current legal owners of these films that they amount to much, much more than mere property to be exploited and then locked away. They are among the greatest treasures of our culture, and they must be treated accordingly. I suppose we have to refine our notions of what cinema is and what it isn't. Federico Fellini is a good place to start. You can say a lot about you can say a lot of things about Fellini's movies, but here's one thing that is incontestable: they are cinema. Fellini's work goes a long way toward defining the art form, and this is where Scorsese loses me. A because his argument that uh, you know that it's maybe there was a fantasy time where it wasn't about business bullshit from the beginning it was always about oh, yeah. business it was always about money there's a reason these studios signed these actors to multi-film contracts there's a reason studios were churning out like 200 films a year not like what you see now they were churning them out because they were trying to make as much money as possible get people into the theaters to spend their hard-earned dimes to lose themselves uh for an hour and a half or an hour or even two hours you were pushing it in a film uh, and this idea that they're being locked away, this is like those people that came out and said, I'm being I'm being muzzled on my seven podcasts and right. my four shows and my nine channels. And the fact that I'm still speaking in front of a microphone as a senator in the Congress, I'm being muzzled. Bullshit. It's lies. Nothing is being locked away. These films are actually more accessible than they've ever fucking been. And so to me, this drives you nuts, this idea of an old man yelling that they're taking away my stuff. And that's not what's happening at all. I think, I think, you know, of course. And I love say, Casey, by the way. <laughs> of course, me too. So, well, but it is, you know, he, he comes from a rarefied place mm-hmm. and he is a specific kind of person who grew, came up a certain way. And I think what he's pointing to is the fact that things have changed. And you're right. He's right. Things have changed. Yeah. The fact that, Hollywood is a business and cinema movies are a business that hasn't changed. Right. That's the same. What has changed is just the landscape of media is, and we, we had this conversation. I remember with Scott Manson talking about, I was trying, I kept trying to articulate a thing that I never succeeded, which is the idea of as there's more and more stuff that is preserved, more and more stuff will get lost. Yes. As there's just not, because when we were kids, there were three networks. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of UHF channels. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, a few movie theaters near us. Yeah. We we maybe had a video store once VHS, you know, once VCRs got introduced. There was a few radio stations. And for the most part, you watched whatever was on. Yeah. You know, and so then when you discovered, you know, Lawrence of Arabia or Citizen Care, something like that, it was like, oh, my God, what a discovery. And you would seek it out. Now... There is millions and millions yeah. and millions of hours of media available at all time. Yeah. And so, yeah, think the fact is, is that not that many people are going to watch Sunrise. It's right. a movie that we've talked about doing on the Cinephiles, and maybe we will. But, like, th- th- there's just so much stuff. I mean, how, you know, it's like how much new TV that you hear is great, which a lot of it is, has come out in the last month. You know, we just can't. So people don't aren't going to, and, and, and do I mourn that the way Scorsese does? Yeah, I do. And, mm-hmm. and do I agree that we, we like, this is our mission is to, yeah. to show. do just what I he's show. saying yeah. to preserve and throw focus a spotlight on these films that are valuable. But mm-hmm. the fact is, is that most people are not going to go watch, um, you know, some obscure they're not going to go watch Fellini most you know kids my son's age are not going to watch all the Fellini films because there's too much stuff and that's too bad but people like Martin Scorsese people like you and me people Mm -hmm. who love cinema are going to seek it out yeah you know 
Yeah. And, and that's what I think. And Steve, what we have now with these streaming services are portable video stores. So in essence, what we do when we're navigating and searching through these uh, streams, these streaming platforms rather, is walking through our video stores. You're walking through a virtual video store to find the movie that you want to watch. But I always think, and this is why I think this is a little bit cynical of Scorsese, it is always up to the consumer to decide what he or she wants to watch. And if there were enough consumers who wanted to go back and preserve classic movies and watch classic movies and talk about classic movies, then he probably wouldn't be complaining about this. But this is the number. We've always been a smaller part of the majority. We've always been that. And so what he's complaining about, uh, I get the genesis of it, but he's also a little cynical and he's not attacking the people who are being are allowing themselves to be pushed away from cinema and veer towards other things like a cat video or what have you. Um, and I think he's a little bit undercutting some of the people who can do a cat video and also watch Lawrence of Arabia. And I think there's a lot of people who do that nowadays. And the older generation can't conceive of how the younger generation is viewing everything, is consuming everything, because they are, from the birth, they are able to focus on multiple different levels of media at once, all at once. It's essentially trying to watch nine televisions and nine different programs at the same time. That's what these kids are able to do from such young ages now. And so maybe the cinephile situation, some of them get lost, but that's why it's always been up to the personal, up to the person's own personal desire to become a cinephile. It's there's there's a joy in the effort in becoming a cinephile, Steve. The journey is what matters. I I, I agree, and and I think that one of the points he makes that I that I I agree with is there are things that algorithms and popularity will deliver to you that a curator, a fine critic will not. Right. And there are things that the curator and the fine critic can deliver to you that those things are not. There's a book, this is a strange analogy, but uh, I think it's Fareed Zakaria who wrote a book Mm. that was something about democracy. And what he was basically talking about was the fail, where where just whatever people vote for isn't necessarily the best thing is that Mm. is that and one of them was the difference there was a i remember one of his examples was there was a book of the month club that Mm. you could in the 50s and the book of the month club was decided by uh three famous authors two professors of literature you know six critics who are of of literature and they would get together and talk about the greatest books of that year and then they would choose these 12 books and at one point, the company that did it, and I don't know what publishing company is, says, you know what, instead of doing that, let's just pick the 12 most popular books. Mm-hmm. So whatever people are buying, those are the best books, and therefore we'll send those as the 12 books. And the Book of the Month Club, which was a hugely successful business, yeah. went in the toilet. Yep. Because what is popular isn't the same thing is that sometimes you need a guide. Sometimes yeah. you need the, the guy at the record store to point you to the indie band that you never heard about. Right. Sometimes that's what you need and you get a yeah. different thing out of that. You know, it's why it's, it's why I think the, what is the top box office, you know, of every weekend news like, mm-hmm. Oh, this is number one. That's not a, that's a sign of something. Yeah. It's not a sign of it necessarily being the best film. Yeah. It's just a sign of that's what most people want to see. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, um, uh, thank you, uh, everybody, for listening, and especially for our patrons 
who, um, you know, give us so much love every month and support what we're doing here on the show as we curate the cinephiles <laughs> and, uh, of course, present and talk about some of these great classic films. And we're not forcing you to watch anything. We're out here trying to present to you these beautiful films uh, that you can enjoy and watch and reappreciate with us, not through us, with us. And I think uh, having conversations like this are really powerful to take a moment to let you guys know how much we love films and how much we love discussing the concept and theory of film and the history of the film and the film industry as well. So yeah, read the article. It's in, um, Oh God, I, I dropped it out again. It's in, it's in, it's, it's coming up here on March 20, 21. Har- well, the, the full article I think is in Harper's. Yeah, that's it. Harper's it's going to yeah. be in Harper's in the March, 2021 edition. El Maestro go and read that there. Um, uh, for Steve Morris, uh, I'm John Roca, and thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Cinephile Shorts. Take care. Hello, and welcome to another Cinephile Short. My name is Steve Morris, here with my partner, John Roca. Hello. And uh, today our question comes from Carl Vogel. No relation, I assume. <laughs> um, he says, Cinephile Short suggestion, good question mark student films on the podcast. Steve occasionally references refers to his students, usually he's describing in a caring mentorly way. <laughs> Thanks, Carl. How their films are kind of bad, not just kinda. Frequently really bad. Is do I sound caring and mentory? <laughs> Uh, This has gotten me interested in how one makes a good student film. Students lack not only resources like time and money, but also knowledge and experience. What are some of the ways that good student films work around those constraints? Is it similar to just being a a good budget film director or is it a different skill set? Can you describe some experiences uh, of examples of good student films that you've seen? Or what are some interesting evolutions or improvements you've seen in students over time in general? I'm always intrigued by the tidbits to get about Steve's life as a teacher. So I'd really be uh, so really it'd be interesting. I'd be interested in hearing topics in that vein you might want to discuss. Thanks so much for the podcast. You guys are awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. I realized while reading that that I might not be that good on a teleprompter. Well, it takes it takes a, a you know a skill to get good at a teleprompter, my man. It's not easy for anybody who can who, who has to read stuff overall. But let's get to the questions here. There's like seven questions about this. Uh, what's your feeling about what he's asking you about these well, constraints in all students? Here's the first thing I would say: yeah. is that the the thing that I think is most shocking to students is that making movies is really, 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 really hard. It's just hard to make a movie that works. Um, and, and a lot of the things that they, particularly in the very beginnings, they don't even understand the questions that they need to ask, you know, like they don't understand what is required. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the first thing is that they don't know what a story is. Yeah. So, so, and this is one of the hard things is that where I taught and most film schools, particularly at the beginning, the student is writing and directing their own film. And it's like, they might not have that writing skill set, you know? So just figuring out and like the first semester in my school, they have to make five, five or six films. So that's a lot of stories to figure out and, and, and a very, very short amount of time. So that it's just really hard. Okay. Um, The other thing I would say is there's a way of storytelling. And the question I continually ask my, the way, the way I teach my class 
is the students will pitch their film usually before they pitch it, before they Mm -hmm. go shoot it. Mm -hmm. And both for, I think it's really important in terms of learning to tell your own story because you got to be able to tell your story to actors. You got to be able to explain to the cinematographer, but it also, it really exposes what's wrong with it and why it's not working. So Mm -hmm. frequently like the first assignment in at my school is to do a mise-en-scene film, which means a film in one shot. Mm-hmm. And so they'll say like, okay, there's this person in a window and they're looking out at this guy on the street and the guy on the street can't get the key in their, in their lock of their car. Cause they have the wrong key. And I'll say, how are we seeing this? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, you got one shot. So how can you be up in the house with the person looking out the window and down at the car and see an insert of a key, not going into a lock? It's not possible to shoot these, you know? And so frequently students are shooting things where they don't know, they don't have the skill set to know how to tell the actual story. Right. You know? Right. Um, have, have, you've been on student film sets, right? Yeah. I've shot seven student films in my life. Um, a bulk of them before I left Tallahassee to come mm-hmm. to Los Angeles. Uh, the way it worked at Florida state, it was crazy. I tried to get into be uh, cast in student films for the first two years I was there and then the last year I was there, one student put me in a film and all of a sudden I got like five or six in a row because other people saw me on sets and saw my performance and were like, will you come do my film? And then it was another set, will you come do my film? So it was that kind of thing piece by piece. So it was interesting to watch so many different student film directors. And Tallahassee is a good, I mean, Florida State rather, is a good university has a good reputation for film directors, for film, for mm. you know, producing film directors that come out of there, and I I remember that um, it was so interesting to be with different types of directors from different nationalities. Like I was directed by a, a Brazilian exchange student, uh, by an Argent- Argentinian student, by of course by American students, by female directors, male directors. Um, it was so interesting to see their tact and how they approached it. And as an actor, you know the ones who don't see you as movable props uh, and actually see you as a, as a person who should be collaborated with. And I've always appreciated that. And then when you're watching them, because obviously I was older, so when I was, because I was 27 when I went back to college, so I was watching them when I would sit off camera and see the ones who actually understood how to run a set and then what shots they wanted for the entire student film. Because most of the time when they shoot a student film, at least my experience, they're shooting it over 24 hours or they're shooting it over three days. Um, it's not a lot of time. And so you have to kind of be tight and know what you want and understand the angles, understand the shots, whose point of view. So it was uh, certainly an interesting experience watching who were the ones that were on top of it and who were the ones that were overwhelmed by it. Um, and who knew how to talk to their crew and who didn't, you know, that reflects everything that I've seen too. Mm. And there's so many things that a director has to do that students aren't really prepared to do. One of the big ones is being to quote George W. Bush, the decider Mm. is that people go like, Oh, I want to direct a movie, but they don't really understand what that entails. And so I would spend a lot of time on sets with students and something would happen. And the cinematographer would come up and say, Hey, do you want this or this? Or the AD would come up and say, we're running out of time. We've got we to gotta cut some shots. Mm. They say, what should we do to the director? And the director turns to me. And, I, and it happens all the time where they just kind of look over at me with kind of a deer in the <laughs> headlights. And 
And they say, well, what do I do? And I'm like, well, that's up to you. And they're like, no, but what should I do now? And I'm like, you have to decide, right. you know, and, 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 and they're, they're really sh- a lot of them. I would say 30, 40% are just not ready for that. Yeah. That everyone, 10, 15, 20 people on the set are looking at them and waiting for a decision and they don't know what the answer is, you know? And then, so what frequently what I will do in that situation as a teacher is really explain the options yeah, and try to explain like here, because, because one of the big things that's important to understand is there are variables and there are unknowns. Mm-hmm. And so frequently the, the, one of the most basic decisions a director has to make is do we move on? So I've shot the take of you. I did your close up. I've done two takes. I think, man, John was, pretty good i think there's something better but we're looking at the clock and the sun went behind a cloud and do we move on or do we not or do another take and that could be a really hard decision because and so so frequently i'm explaining to student like this is where you are it's 11 30 in the morning the sun's going to be down at 4 30 according to your shot list you have 12 more shots it took you two hours to get your first two shots and, and then asking the question, how do you feel about what you saw? And the other thing that happens is that directors frequently, they don't realize they can change things. Mm. Like the DP will set up a shot and they'll go, okay. And I'll say, do you like that shot? And like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, is that the framing that you wanted? Because that's not what you had in the storyboard. Yeah. And they go, no, I'd rather with something else. I was like, well, why aren't you talking to your DP about changing the shot? You know, or actor gives a performance and I'll go, and they'll go, okay, I guess we're moving on. It's like, wait, they didn't say the lines right. Did, mm. did you, are you okay with that? And the, and the director will frequently go, well, what did they say? I'm like, well, you needed to be paying attention to know what they yeah, said, you know, exactly. um, and in particular talking to actors. I mean, as you, as you know, I'm sure you've had directors who had no fucking idea how to talk to you. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. And I, cause I was older, like I said, I would pull them aside and be like, listen, you need to tell me exactly what it is you're looking for here, what you want to accomplish from the scene and what I've got to bring into it and bring out of it. So meet me halfway here and I'll give you what you want. And trust me, this will cut down on time. And so I had to kind of have a couple of moments with directors like that because um, I wasn't a 21 year old kid or a 20 year old kid in college, you know, not sure how to speak about my craft. I was like clear about what it was uh, uh, and how to approach it. And nothing irritates me more than directors who don't know how to speak to actors. It drives me out of my fucking mind because I'm like, this should be the number one thing you're taught after you get the technical stuff down. This is the number one thing you should be taught how to speak to actors. Um, because it, like I said, it will save you time on a set. Like nobody's business. It'll save you time. What's so bizarre, because in my opinion, mm-hmm. I'm good at talking to actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say so. We haven't worked with you. Yeah. Yeah. And part of it is that I was in theater. I acted in my first play when I was eight years old. You know, I acted a ton. And so that stuff was kind of natural. But at my school, when I went to USC, you were not required to take an acting class. You were required to take an editing class, cinematography class. You were taking take writing classes, producing classes, sound classes all elements of the movie set, except you were not required to take an acting class and you were not required to take a music class. <laughs> um, I, some, some directors chose to take an acting class. I didn't because I felt like I was better served elsewhere. Mm. Um, it's a really 
I mean, as you know, you know, far better than me, acting's a weird job. Yeah. And, and frequently, like one of the things students don't usually understand is they don't understand subtext. And so mm. a, they don't know how to write it and B when they, if they're doing a scene that someone else, like one of the assignments that we would do is they would be, have to direct a scene that was like a professional scene from a real right. movie or a real TV show. Right, right. And almost always they wouldn't understand the subtext of the scene. Mm-hmm. They would just, everything's at face value. So like one of the scenes, if we ever do this, it's going to be really weird. But one of the scenes <laughs> they would do is in Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And there's a scene like where they're counting up the gold and it's when Humphrey Bogart is starting to lose it. And yeah. he's starting to distrust everybody. Yeah. And what he's doing in the scene is saying, I'm, I'm totally trustworthy, but you know, what if someone wasn't trustworthy? Yeah. And my students would always direct it at face value, believing whatever, that every person in the scene is saying the truth. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, everything is underneath. It's actually almost all the opposite of what they're saying. Like Mm. the point is, is that Humphrey Bogart is the one that you can't trust. Right. You know, and and they would have such trouble figuring that out. And if you don't understand that, how could you communicate to an actor? Right. 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 Yeah. It's so essential. And I imagine that's what you're teaching these people in your classes, you know, how to look at all the angles of what you're doing. Because just like anything else, people want to, what's the easiest way I can get this done? What's the quickest way I can get this done? And the truth is, you've got to understand all the moving parts and that is what's going to make it quicker. That's the ironic. That's the ironic part, Steve. Is uh, and I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here because I know you teach this. It's like once you learn everything and get it down, that actually is going to cut time. The the, the fact oh, yeah. that you want to cut time by just learning the basics of everything uh, is not actually going to lead to a better product or lead to a quicker accomplishment of your shoot. You know, knowing everything or having a really good knowledge of all the different facets will allow you to speak in shorthand to the people you need to speak to to get what you need to get out of what they're doing on your set. You know, first of all, you're never speaking out of uh, turn. I think you're an expert on this stuff. I mean, you've been around you've been around this world as long as I have, you know, like uh, uh, and and you've experienced a different set of stuff than me. So I, yeah. you know, I always respect whatever you're, you're bringing. I, you're a hundred percent right. And what's weird about learning directing as an art is that there's a sort of a parallel education. There wow. is a technical craftsmanship administration, budgeting efficiency education, which has nothing to do with art, mm-hmm. but is what is necessary to know in order to make the art. And then there is the, emotional aesthetic story thing Mm -hmm. and you and 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 you could have the best story stuff in the world and if you don't know how to organize a shoot it's never going to make it on film Mm -hmm. and you could be the best technical person in the world and if you don't know what the hell a story is it's going to be terrible you know um one of the things i'm teaching is all about efficiency it's all about how do you get everything you want in the smallest possible time and in general it's planning ahead and it's going through the moves and looking at the order that you're going to shoot things in and figuring out how to do it with as few shots as possible in the most efficient way as possible. Mm-hmm. Like every time you have to turn the room, which means I'm lighting one direction then I turn around to light the other direction for like, uh, you know, two people are talking to each other. Well, that's 45 minutes yeah. to turn yeah. the room, depending on the complexity of your set it could be three hours. And so, like, you don't want to do that too much because if you have three times you turn the room, well, that eats up almost half your day. 
Yeah. You know, so figuring out how to do all that stuff. Efficiency is really important. Artistically, the thing I've started to ask lately, and it really confuses my students, but it's become so critical to me is I'm continually asking, wait, what is this scene about? Hmm. And they look at me like, what do you mean? I don't understand the question. And I'm like, what is the scene about? And what's so funny is I'm asking the most basic possible thing. Right. And frequently, the students think I'm asking something that's more complicated than what it is. Mm-hmm. Is like, this scene is about this person is in love with that person, and this person isn't interested in them romantically. That's the scene. Mm-hmm. And then what you do is every shot, every line is about supporting that idea. Right. It isn't, and this is what's so hard to understand about making a film. You're not just photographing the story. Like if it says this person goes into the room, they wash their face, they drop the towel on the floor, they look under something and they see a gun underneath the sink. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't just set up the camera and photograph that. (laughs) You need to, because you need to actually find ways to do it that actually tells a dramatic story. There was the first film I wrote, which was called Stonebrook, which Seth Green was in. um, uh, I was very frustrated with the cut. And you know me, yeah. I have strong opinions about things. I didn't direct the film and I didn't edit the film. And I'm watching it with my sister. And there was a scene where a character makes a really important life choice. And it was mostly in a wide shot. And we, I paused the scene as I'm watching it on VHS with my sister. And I said, ah, it's so frustrating because you don't really see him make that choice. And my sister said, no, I saw him make the choice. I know that's what was happening. I'm like, I know that you know that's what was happening, but you didn't feel it. She's like, yeah, I did. I was like, no, you don't understand because <laughs> you didn't. Because to me, it's like you needed to have the close up and the pause. so You could see the change on the person's face and see what the thing that they saw and see their reaction to it to have the emotional experience. And that's what is the scene about? Like, how do we how do we get that out of the scene? Right. You know, right. Yeah, not an easy thing to do, that's for sure. It almost reminds me of that. We were, we've been recording Moneyball where he says, what's the problem? No, yeah. Grady, what is the actual problem? You know, and so, yeah, you, you, I know you know the basic idea, but what is that? What is the foundation of this basic idea that we've got to convey? What do you want the audience to feel? What do you want to have the audience understand is happening here? So, yeah. Here's an example with that. I And this is I don't normally play tricks on my students, but occasionally I do. <laughs> so here's here's one of them is that in, in a camera blocking class. So just talking about how do we decide where we're going to put the camera? Wide shots, close ups everything in one moving tracking shot, everything divided up. How do we do it? And I ask, this is what I say to my students. Okay. Here's a scenario. There's two, a man and a woman are in bed. The man gets a, a, a text on his phone and he gets out of, gets up, gets out of bed and walks out of the room. How do you mm-hmm. film it? And my students come up with all sorts of interesting oh the camera's above them in a top-down shot and then it slowly pushes in and then it tilts up and follows them out or that i do a, a master and then a close-up and a close-up and an insert or the camera's on a on a dolly that tracks circular around the bed moving into his face into an over the shoulder with her and i'm like these are all really interesting shots <laughs> almost inevitably yes no one in the class asks what is going on in the scene 
who, what is the relationship? Is it two old people who have been married for 75 years? Is it the guy's having an affair and he just got a text from his wife? Is it that he got a text that his kid is in the hospital? Is it that they are, this is a one night stand and he realizes he doesn't, you know, is it, Mm -hmm. is she awake? Is she asleep? Do they, you know, and, and it's like, what is the scene about? Figuring out where to put the camera should be based on what am I trying to tell? What is the story? And this is a thing my students struggle with. One other thing that Carl asks about money. Mm. Uh, Money's a big deal. And it's so weird. I don't know if there's any other school program where rich people have such an advantage. Mm -hmm. Because if you go to medical school, once you pay to get into the school, everybody's experiences are the same. Someone with a lot of money can't bring their money to bear on anatomy class. But I've had students like for a thesis project where one student in my class was spending, I kid you not, $35,000 on this short film. And another student was desperately trying to, you know, working two jobs and going into credit card debt to get 800 bucks to make their film. Wow. And those two two films are, I have to grade. Mm -hmm. And there is no way the person with 800 bucks is going to be able to do the same things as the person with $35,000. Right. But I will tell you, I have often given much better grades to that $800 film. <laughs> and that $800 film was way, way, way better. There is one $35,000 film that a student made that looked amazing. Like mm-hmm. it, it was a zombie movie and the zombie makeup could have been in an any could have been in Walking Dead. It wow. looked great. The lighting, they took over a whole street, had multiple cars going by. It was outdoor at night. He had big, huge lights. It looked fantastic. I literally have no idea what the movie was about. <laughs> I had, I, when I saw the script, I was like, I don't understand why this character is saying this. I don't understand what's happening. I don't, <laughs> and he and he barely shot any coverage. He only had one oh, shot wow. for each scene. So when I'm in post with him, this is just so terrible. It's like I'm in post. And my job is to watch a cut or watch a scene and then give suggestions. And I, I, every once in a while, and this was one of the cases like, I don't know what to tell you. You know, (laughs) I, I did give some suggestions. It was a rewrite an entire monologue. And because it was a lot of voiceover, I was like, this makes no sense. You have to rewrite this whole thing. Right. Um, But it was also like, well, why don't we cut, can we cut to a close up here? Well, I don't have a close up. Well, can we cut to an insert? No, I don't have an insert. Well, do you have coverage that's looking the other way? No, I don't. I'm like, if you only have one shot, I can't really tell you how to re-edit yeah. the scene. Yeah. But I've, and no I've way since, out. <laughs> yeah. So the, the biggest answer is like, have a good story and know how to tell it. That yeah. actually doesn't require a lot of money. No. You know, no, you can no. shoot it with your iPhone. If it's a good story and the shots are in good places, that'll be a good movie. Yep. Storyboarding is essential. Mm-hmm. essential. Yeah. Yep. And it, it's sad, though, man, when you have students... And they get to that place and they're in their thesis film and they've spent, let's say they've spent $5,000, you know, mm-hmm. and asked money from their parents and asked money for friends or raised it on, you know, sometimes they raise it on Kickstarter or whatever. And they're sitting there in post with a movie that is beyond not working, you know, that is mm-hmm. unsavable. It's yeah. pretty rough. Oh, I can imagine. It's yeah, pretty absolutely. rough. So, Carl, I hope that answers your question. I don't know if you're <laughs> thinking about applying to film school um, and if this will dissuade you or not. But, uh, yes, it is always very interesting. Yes, most of the movies are really bad. And, yes, occasionally 
I've had probably in the 10 years I've been teaching five really, really genuinely talented students. Wow. That's it. Wow. Yeah. But these are people who are like, wow, this person is good. Like there was a couple yeah. of students where it was sort of like, I don't have anything to teach you, you know, <laughs> like, you know how to make a film. Um, yeah. And that's pretty exciting. That is cool. Um, so patrons, thank you as always for all of your support. We could not make the cinephiles without you. We really appreciate it. We'd love these shorts uh, questions. Uh, John, do you have anything uh, you feel you need to tell them? Do for instance, how to contact you. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you wanted to uh, reach out to me, you can do so on my Twitter and Instagram at The Roca Says or rolling over to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca Says and see all the stuff I'm, I'm making over there. So a lot of fun. Um, yeah, there you go. That's my answers. And me. First of all, I think that was my worst throw over to you of all time. <laughs> that might have been the worst one. I've been. Just, can we like have coverage on that? We can use another shot on that. <laughs> well, I could just cut the whole thing. The nice thing, this is the great thing about doing an audio only podcast. It yes. is so much easier for me to cut out the mistakes. This one I won't cut out because I think it was kind of funny. And if you want to talk to me more about film school or other things that I cut out of our shorts, you can reach me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And once again, patrons, thank you all so much. And we'll see you next time on another Cinephile Short. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Cinephile Shorts. I am one of your hosts, John Roca, joined, as always, by the man, the myth, the legend, Steve Morris. And today we are back with a new topic from one of our patrons, Peter Bylone or Bailoni. I don't know if I'm saying either one of them or maybe it's Balone. I don't know. It's uh, something like that. It's uh, Pater. Is it Peter? Yes, Peter Bailoni uh, or Peter Bailone, depending on how you're reading this. Uh, and he sends a message. He says, guys. I have a question that might make for an interesting, although controversial, topic for a short. And hey, Steve and I are never shy about tackling a controversy, as, as I'm hoping we do it correctly. Uh, he goes on to say, with the mini controversy around cuties on Netflix, I was wondering your thoughts on why some films, Lolita, Call Me By Your Name, and even the pro professional to an extent, that deal with the topic of underage sexuality are accepted as art, while others are seen as lurid or even exploitive. What marks the difference between acceptable narrative and unacceptable narratives when dealing with such taboo topics? Just a thought. Would also love to hear you two discuss 42, even though it isn't 10 years old, to mark the passing of Mr. Bozeman if you feel like it's worth the effort. So, Steve, he's tackled us, or he's, ta he's, uh, he's uh, given us a, a, a controversial subject to tackle and then tacked on a completely different subject for us to 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 uh, end on maybe on a maybe he sensed it'd be better for us to end on something positive uh, after we've no, talked no, I think about maybe something these are two different shorts. I, I think maybe <laughs> okay. we hold we can hold off on because okay. the transition I can't quite think of how to segue <laughs> from Lolita to Jackie Robinson. <laughs> I mean, I could probably come up with some stuff, but all of them would yeah. be probably offensive. Yeah, fair um, enough. I think this is an incredibly difficult topic. Yeah. You know, yeah. you say we don't shy away from topics and I really never want to. Yeah. I think my answers on this are continuing to evolve. Okay. If you had asked me this five or 10 years ago, I would have just like, look, art is art. And, you know, and, and I've read Lolita. I don't know if you have, it is yes, extremely disturbing. Yeah. It is also gorgeously written. Uh, Nabokov has like such an amazing, for a guy that English isn't his first language, his command of the language is so incredible. And I just, I want to read the opening line of Lolita because it's just so, and again, this is a book about a man falling in love with a 12 year old girl and his yeah. relationship with her. So it's a fucked up book. 
Fair but this is the first line of the book. Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin, my soul, Lolita, the yeah. tip of the tongue taking a trip of three steps down the palate to tap at three on the teeth, Lolita. That writing is stunning. And the fact that while writing it, and I say Lolita, my tongue is tapping my teeth three times. I mean, it's just so... And so it is, it is a work of art. It is also an extremely disturbing book. And my yeah. feelings about it have changed. I mean, okay. it's a really fucked up book. Yeah, I agree. And um, even the two adaptations that have been done uh, with um, James Mason uh, that Stanley Kubrick did and Peter Sellers and Shelley Winters. And I forget the actress who plays Lolita. Uh, and, then the, and then the one that was done with Jeremy Irons. Um, uh, that was done. I think Adrian Lynn did that one, I believe. The guy mm. did nine and a half weeks. Um, one was done that to explore the sadness of a man who would allow himself to be in love with a 12 year old. And another one, the other more modern version, was done to sexually titillate, which I think is uh incorrect with dominique swain and even dominique swain has come out and said afterwards how she felt she was taken advantage of in the movie and how she portrayed lolita but like in the original it's done to showcase the sad desperation of a middle-aged man or slightly older than middle-aged man thinking that he could go after or be with someone so young um and peter sellers really hammering home that as he pursues him through the entire movie um so this is a very interesting question. I do want to give some background for people who don't know about the Cuties uh, controversy mm. here for Netflix. Um, so this, uh, there was a spike in U.S. customer cancellations of Netflix following the debut of Cuties. And it co- Cuties tells the story of an 11-year-old Sen- Senegalese girl living in Paris who struggles to find her identity torn between her family's Muslim traditions and her peer group's attempts to emulate the sexualized persona of women as portrayed in Western culture and on social media. The film includes scenes of the protagonist, Amy, performing highly sexualized dance routines with the cutie's dance crew and shows the underage characters in, an, in other adult situations and predictably a backlash ensued. This is coming from Variety. Uh, the hashtag cancel Netflix started trending worldwide on September 9th on its release. Um, uh, the account cancellations hit the peak of about five times the churn rate of January 1st, 2019. So this is people were canceling this thing because they were being, they were being, uh, they were incorrectly, in my opinion, incorrectly, um, looking at this as an exploitation of these young girls rather than this French director exploring what is actually happening for young girls of this age in our current society uh, in another country. You know, uh, it's a social commentary against the sexualization of young children, and it actually won, an, won awards, um, and it's supposed to showcase the pressure that young girls face on social media and from society more generally growing up. And we'd encourage, and the, you know, the, the statement from the company said they'd encourage anyone who cares about these important issues to watch the movie. So uh, she said it was supposed to, the director, Decoré, said um, that, the, uh, that the purpose of her film uh, is to show the world through the eyes of young girls and shine a spotlight on the problem of social media, encouraging children to assume hyper-sexualized identity. So it became a very controversial thing because it's like, well, you're showing them in these scenes and in these sequences 
uh, and um, you are trying to show the reality of what's actually happening. And of course, um, the right, the religious right, and even some members of the left uh, struck back against this uh, series and said it was uh, exploitive of young girls and was made for pedophiliacs and all this kind of stuff. And so wherever you fall on the controversy, this is what the controversy was. So, I, yeah, I, I, I think it's it's this is super complicated. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, my main, you know, and, and that because I believe that to some degree, the job of artists is to put the mirror up to nature. Yeah. And if there's shit going on in the world, and one of the things that is going on in the world is the increasing sexualization of young girls. Yeah. You know, through the images within the media, through social media, through the access to pornography, mm-hmm. you know, like all of these things, this is really happening. Yeah. And so the, and so to say that art should ignore that because we don't want to cross certain lines is problematic. We also don't want to cross certain lines, you know? Right. It's right. so it's like, it's really hard. Like I saw, this is a weird analogy, but there's been lots of talk because, you know, we have friends, a bunch of friends who are comic book artists and comic book artists, comics have traditionally been a medium mostly read by boys yeah. and men and the women and their outfits and their bodies were very objectified. Yeah. And I once saw a, a woman who, and like it, it, the example they were using was Power Girl. And Power Girl, mm-hmm. you know, oh, who yeah. is, is a woman who is uh, always drawn as very buxom. Mm-hmm. And um, this f- woman, female comic book artist, whose name I can't remember, took the classic drawing and then redrew it, not objectifying her. Still mm-hmm. the same sort of body type, but the way the costume hang, the, what the pose was, all those things mm-hmm. allowed it to be a great drawing, but not necessarily objectifying. And so, and so like we get into this thing of, well, first of all, young girls are being sexualized. Yes. And so if I want to show, and I mean, I'm sure you've seen it too. I've seen like a nine, 10 year old girl wearing a s- sexy clothes at the mall. Yeah. And it's just like, ugh. So now I want to make a movie that's dealing with that. And I put the girl in the clothes that was for real what's happening. And then someone watches my movie and says, well, you're objectifying the girl. And it's like, well, kind of, I just did because, Mm -hmm. because a lot of movies are about, well, what was your perception? Mm -hmm. You know? So if someone, if a, if a pedophile watched that film and got turned on, which, you know, like what's my set of responsibility. And then, if a young girl watches that film and instead of seeing it as a comment on the sexualization of young girls goes, I love that outfit. Well, what, what's happening? I mean, that's why I go, this is such a complicated issue. Yeah. I I feel Steve, like once we start policing art, we lose art. And I think that's where it comes to for me. And this idea of canceling Netflix, this is censorship. Uh, If Netflix buys something that was an award winning film and puts it out for people to consume, uh, people have every right to like it or hate it, right? But to encourage people to cancel a streaming service because of it, to me, is censorship. Um, and these are probably the same people who were crying about canceling their favorite comic or their favorite actor because they said something untowards about women or about people of color or whatever in the past. They're the same ones crying about canceling cancel culture, but here they are trying to cancel a streaming service. So well, wait, me, wait, 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 wait. What's yeah. I don't understand what the difference is. Like, well, what, I, what, what's the difference between canceling 
I'm saying uh, it's hypocrisy is what I'm saying. Don't cry about a comic being canceled, then turn around and with the other side of your mouth, want a streaming service to be canceled. Wait, so, so you're saying, but, you're, but, but there are all sorts of women on the left who are angry and rightfully so about the way women are portrayed in the media. Yeah. I mean, this isn't just people on the right that we're saying canceling cuties. That's what I'm I saying, mean, yeah. I, but I'm, but saying, I'm saying it's not just people on the right. So I don't I, understand. I mean, you know, to me, I said the, some of these people that some of these people were blah, blah, blah. Right. Did but I to not? me, the, the, the having finding something offensive and yeah. then canceling your Netflix subscription is exactly what it's the same thing. Oh, no, you have, you have a right to cancel your. Of course, I'm saying if you're encouraging other people to cancel, that's where the problem lies. Right. In my opinion, because Netflix is not. Uh, it is just a service providing entertainment for people to watch, right? Um, canceling a person specifically or canceling a film specifically, that's separate. But canceling a service that provides this, this entertainment and has in the past provided groundbreaking entertainment that has pushed the boundaries, forced you to think about things, forced you to analyze your opinion about the world or about uh, uh, gender politics or about uh, actual politics or international relations, I think is a dangerous thing. You know, we start to uh, have issues when we start to cancel the things that uh, a service or services that allow these films to be shown or allow these films to be screened. I think that's dangerous. Um, and if you can, if you want to cancel the movie, knock yourself out. I don't have a problem with that. That's your right and freedom of speech. But if you want to cancel a service, I think that's where the problem for me, it becomes an issue, you know? And I don't, I, think, I don't know if I see the distinction. I mean, like, really? Yeah. I mean, explain you know, to me how, yeah, I want to hear how, how, how do you, well, you I mean, you, so people are furious at Roseanne. And so everyone right. says, don't watch ABC. Yeah. And I think that's wrong. That's what I, I'm saying. Dude. I think it's wrong. I see, but I think it's wrong too, but we've had this argument in the other direction. Right. You know, it's like, I, I mean, I think everybody has the right to watch whatever the hell they want to watch, right. but I'm very concerned about censorship from all directions. My concern about censorship isn't about, or so-called cancel culture yeah. isn't from one direction or another. I mean, in fact, that's, yeah. that's worse. No, me. no, I, I, but I'm consistent in this. Don't cancel services. Don't cancel networks, but you can cancel people or shows. To me, that's different because networks and service and networks and uh, streaming services and studios and TV production companies, they put things out there for people to consume uh, and for you to take one movie and banish the entire service off one movie, I think is incorrect. I mean, I, I, I agree with you, but I, that's just what I see happening all the time. Cancel right. the New York Times, cancel the, you know, whatever it is. It's happening right. constantly. Right. Don't go to Universal Studios because it has a Harry Potter land. Right. You know, like that's what I see all the so time. So you're, you're saying any canceling is wrong. I am very, very concerned about, about the mob censoring things. Mm -hmm. okay. I am very concerned about the people becoming irate and a huge, you know, storm of controversy over any piece of art. But you look know? how you construct it, though. You're saying the mob, which is already a negative connotation. Yes, it but is. It, it doesn't have to be the mob. It can just be people who don't want. It could be mothers and fathers who believe in their hearts that this program or this character, this actor, this film or whatever shouldn't be out there for people to consume. You know, well, it doesn't it, necessarily it, make them a mob, though. No, absolutely. If I if I look at a. a 
my son wants to play um what's the video game the shoot it, shooting game that everybody's playing uh vice city i don't know i don't okay. remember what it is there's a game that or something. It, and no it's not even that bad oh okay. and and i've said no because it's too violent like right. That's perfectly acceptable. Yeah. There, there are, are TV shows that I don't like because of their politics or because mm-hmm. of things. That's fine. When I go online and say everybody cancel blank or don't go to blank, well, now, and then if, if a million people agree with me, right. now we've gotten to the mob. You know, and particularly when people don't watch the thing, you know. Right. Like, it, you know, people, uh, Jews were really upset. I'm Jewish, and Jews were really upset about Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. Right. I went to see Passion of the Christ. I don't think that movie's anti-Semitic. Right. I think there's all things you, all sorts of things you could have problems with in that film, but anti-Semitism to me isn't one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the outcry of take it out of the theater, right? Or Monty Python's Life of Brian is one we talked about on the show, right. where somebody starts a campaign to ban this movie, and it gets banned a whole bunch of places. I yeah. don't like that. Yeah. And, and if I'm going to say I don't like that over things that I really like, like Life of Brian, yeah. well, then what what should be my position on things that I don't like? You know, right. if this is it because is it the same, you know, because I believe in freedom of speech. And and, right. and I guess, you know, to bring it back to the, 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 the actual question yeah, yeah, yeah. It is like, you know, we've talked about do we do Animal House on the show? Mm-hmm. And I think in general, our conclusion has been no. And there is a sex scene with a girl who ends up being 13, right. you know, and then there's, you know, a, a real um, elevation of the drunken frat party womanizing thing. Right. That's a big part of what Animal House is. I think Animal House is a really good movie. Yeah. But I don't know if I have a way to talk about it on the show, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't think it should be boycotted i don't think it should be canceled right. but i don't really know that i have a way to discuss it that's constructive are, are you boycotting the show the, the film on our show am i i probably i mean okay. I, I what i would i would say i would put it differently okay i don't know what i don't know what to say you know what i mean like <laughs> well, i think we say like i've been coming around on this and actually meant to have a conversation with you about it that i'd like to tackle animal house and maybe get uh, Sasha Pearl Raver, or one mm. of our female guests that have been in the past, or a new female guest who Sasha actually would be Sasha would be great on it, right? House. Right, who, who actually doesn't have an issue with, or has issues with it, but still appreciates the film, so we can have a more fleshed out, well rounded discussion about it. Because I think there are some very funny parts of the movie, really? and also we can't deny that a lot of what drives these characters. And by the way, Steve, I mean these are people in their mid to late twenties playing, right. uh, playing early, playing young, uh, college kids. Um, a lot of what they tackle partying, drinking, um, you know, trying to see a girl naked. This was stuff that was at the time, um, you know, uh, very, how can I say this? Very normal, uh, normal. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's in ta- and now it's become taboo, you know, and, and I get that and I understand that, you know, but, uh, by the same token, you've got to under- put things in context, right? And I think that's where we can do an interesting job trying to put this film in context with certain scenes. Same thing with Revenge of the Nerds. Revenge of the Nerds is overall a very positive film about accepting people who are different than you. However, one tru- truly horrible scene. Yeah, there's a, where he, uh, you know, kind of tricks this girl into having sex with him, thinking that she's having sex with someone else, and it's actually him. Uh, it's not. 
I don't know how to classify it. I don't. I'm a man, so I can't classify it. You I can. don't know it's if rape. it's. I don't know if it's rape or sexual assault because she's. If she wouldn't give consent to him, right, 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 right. Which she would. I don't know. Right, yeah. right. Um, As but, I said, well, I don't know. Well, and what what is that scene? In the end, she really likes it and falls in love with the nerd. It's a classic male fantasy, right? That reinforces yes. that what he did was okay. And then, you know, oh, sometimes means yes, right? Well, and exactly, and it's like, and so here's the thing, and and, and maybe we should do Animal House for exactly this reason is hmm. that I think Animal House, the the boys have been horny since the beginning of boys. Yes, you know what I mean. Like the fact that we were from the ages of twelve until I don't know fifty, <laughs> um, <laughs> twelve until no the the area of adolescence. Yeah. Guys are really obsessed with sex. Yes. That's one point. That's true. The second thing that's true is that the stuff that goes on in Animal House, maybe not to that level, yeah. but was nor was behavior that happened at colleges and fraternities. And young men were obsessed with seeing girls mm-hmm. naked. And young men did peek into the locker room like in Porky's. Right. Those things happen. And it had just those stories had never been told on film. Right. And so in one sense, I think Animal House does this very positive thing, which is it exposes this truth about men mm-hmm. that had been, you know, hidden in the locker room. Right. But I also think what it did was it it enabled and it um, encouraged that behavior to go even farther because mm-hmm. now you have the model in the movie and now people are having toga parties and now people, and, cause, right. and because the heroes of the film, you know, cause I thought when John Belushi, when I was, I saw it when I was 11 or something, mm-hmm. when John Belushi climbs the ladder to look at the girls having the pillow fight, I thought right. that was the coolest thing in the world. Right. Because, you know, yeah, I was yeah. totally with John Belushi. Yeah. And how did that be- affect my behavior? And how did it affect the behavior of tons of other young men? And so this is exactly, I think, to the point of this question, which mm-hmm. is like, do I think Animal House is a really good movie? Totally. Do I think it says some things that are true about young men? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Is the world better off or worse off for having Animal House? You know, I don't, I, know. I don't know. Yeah, I couldn't possibly remotely uh, have an opinion, an educated opinion on that. Cause it would have to poll everybody in the world and find for generations and find out how it affected them. But to get back to the question here that was asked uh, this idea of art versus commerce, when it comes to the sexualization of uh, young girls in certain movies, the professional is an interesting one. I just interviewed uh, Jean Renault for like 15 minutes for the channel. Oh, and cool. I brought up the professional and if there was going to be a sequel, you know, but uh, he has said on, on a number of occasions that it's like the, the, he is um, still proud of the film, still proud of what happened in the film. But, of course, a lot of people have turned on that film now in retrospect and said, you know, it's like the sexualization of a young Natalie Portman. And how is this old man having these feelings about him? And I always I, I've begun to push back on that because he is an emotionally stunted male. And for him this kind of human connection uh uh and i don't i never felt it was sexual it was more like just an attraction here a connection a human connection with someone uh who was um you know who's female he's i don't think ever had in his life and he's he's a ruthless killer uh an assassin but for her he is vulnerable and sweet and protective and all these things and he never once tries to like have sex with her or take off her clothes or kiss her or make out with her. 
there is this kind of uh, progression of this relationship from friendship or protector to a little bit more that you can see in a love, but not a love that is necessarily sexual. But of course, people do, oh, well, she's doing this and she's doing that. And the, the allegory of the gun and the symbolism of a gun and a young woman's hand, all of that to symbolize his penis. Like I just to me, it's just it, it goes out there and I don't 100 percent agree with it. You know, it doesn't mean that I support the sexualization of young girls. I think they should. I just don't 100 percent agree with it. I think the story I take the story for what it is. It's a guy who is clearly mostly stunted, hasn't gone past a certain level in his brain. His body has moved forward, but his brain hasn't. So for him, this connection with a, a girl, I wouldn't say innocent because she witnessed the death of her parents, but a girl who is like wanting to climb out of her own hole uh, of depression and sadness of the loss of her parents mirrors his own climb out of being this kind of mindless killer for so long. And so they help each other on this journey. Uh, and in the end, what happens, happens. So to me, I just, I don't, that's one of those films that I think is art because it challenges you. Art is supposed to challenge you. Yeah. It's not supposed to make you feel good and rub your head and your tummy and put you to bed. It's supposed to challenge you some art and force you to think about things in a certain way and get out of your preconceived notions or judgments of the world. Uh, and uh, that's why I think certain ones are considered art because they're saying, they're saying more about the subject matter that's happening and other ones can be hypersexual as like a majority of these horror films, a majority of these like uh, prison movies that people seem to love and defend. Those are very much sexual things and you can't remove that. So for me, you got to be consistent in your point of view of these things, you know, so, so, so I have so many you animal house and you're good with Friday 13th constantly using the male gaze on these girls who are scantily clad. You got to explain it to me how you think that's different. I don't, I don't think that's different. Yeah. <laughs> Some people do though. Um, so, so I have so many thoughts. The first one, just on the professional, there's no question in my mind that Luke Besson is playing with that attraction. Yes. Like that's, that's an, an element. I don't know about the symbolism of holding a gun and stuff like that, <laughs> but like clearly watching that movie, one of the tensions is going, wait, what's happening here? Right. Like how do what whoa, how do I feel about this? That that's definitely in there. Mm -hmm. And 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 this is the thing. I, I agree with you. It's like we shouldn't put up walls that say, Oh, this is a thing we can't talk about. Or right. and we certainly shouldn't go like we need to project the idealized human beings in all of our films where everybody is nice and nobody is objectified and no, there's no, no one's a racist and no one's, you know, right. You know, because that's like exactly it's a weird uh, analogy, but it's exactly what's wrong with certain Gene Roddenberry Star Trek things yeah. is they try to make everyone too perfect. Like we're not perfect. Yeah. And the thing is, is that people are, you know, you know like sexual attraction is real. The people like certain bodies that look certain ways and are attracted to them. We yep. can't not be, we can't just ignore that in filmmaking. I had, a, I had an interesting conversation. I see I can say it very quickly mm -hmm. with a good friend of ours uh, uh, who's very beautiful. And we were talking about attractiveness and we were also talking about the things that she does with hair care products or these things or, you know, to, to, or with the clothes that she wears to accentuate her mm -hmm. beauty. And I was always raised in like the, you know, the liberal California, Berkeley, don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge people by their appearances that, that, that physical appearances and stuff are unimportant. And it's what's inside is matter. That's the value system I was raised with. Right. And having that conversation with her, it, it, it was such an epiphany because I went, wait, we all have all these traits, 
-hmm. We have intelligence and strength and endurance and, you know, basically the list of Dungeons and Dragons attributes. Yeah. And then we can do stuff with them to improve them. So you can, you know, go to the library and read a lot and study in order to bring up your brain power. Yeah. You can go to the gym and lift weights, bring up your strength. You can do all these things. And those various things give you advantages in the world. Mm -hmm. Why is physical attractiveness put on the bottom of the list? Clearly, people can are, are born with certain levels of physical attractiveness, and then yeah. they can put in a lot of effort in the way they dress and exercise and makeup and hairstyling. And those things give them advantages when they go out into the world to get a yeah. job, to get a date, all those yeah. things. Give, and why are we valuing strength over beauty or intelligence over strength? Why are we putting these things up? And it's like, we go to a movie to have an emotional reaction to things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the emotional reactions is to beauty. Like yeah. if I had a beautiful Lawrence of Arabia shot and you go, oh my God, that photography is so beautiful. Or I have a beautiful, amazing location, you know, like the hotel in The Shining. You're like, oh my God, this location is amazing. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. Now I have a beautiful person on yeah. screen. Yeah. Why is that not okay? You know? Yeah. We have to find our way back to that middle ground again, Steve, in my opinion. It's like... The Me Too movement is absolutely valid, and, and it's so great to see so many people finally listening, including, I'm sure, you and I hearing some of the oh, things yeah. that women are saying and speaking about that for numerous decades, multiple generations of women have endured at the hands mm -hmm. of men or at the hands of a patriarchal society. That's very important to hear and listen and understand. Uh, but by the same token, this desire to destroy uh, the idea of physical attraction as being something of value, I think, is not good uh, because I think people aspire to be the best person of themselves. And sometimes it is the working out and the walking and people do naturally feel better or healthier. Absolutely. When they lose weight or whatever. And, and I always find it hypocritical that some that whenever these celebrities are like, you know, when they're heavier, they're just like, embrace my look and I embrace my weight. and I've never been happier. And then when they lose 60 to 100 pounds, they're crowing about it on the latest gossip magazine or whatever. And it's like, well, which is it? Which is it? You know, and so it's just like this kind of stuff that I find uh, throughout the whole idea of but I think you shouldn't body shame. Absolutely. And I think these magazines that people point out, women have pointed out, have an unrealistic view of beauty. Yes, a million percent. But acting does not have to adhere to that. Films do not have to adhere to that. Films for generations, for decades, have had people who are good looking and unattractive, heavy and skinny and in the middle all throughout and have played leads all throughout. Uh, is it consistently skinnier, more, you know, more uh, matinee style looking people? Yes. But by the same token, we shouldn't discount the fact that some of them were born with certain attributes. This is like, this is like akin to like being upset because someone's more intelligent than you are. We shouldn't intelligence shame. And it's like, well, no, I'm using what I've been given to achieve a certain thing and I'm motivated because a lot of these people are completely unhappy eating as little as possible to stay in that shape. But they also know that that's how they achieve success, you know, and maybe down the road we change and it's more consistently that people just look like regular people. Like my girlfriend tries to point out on the Brits, the Brits all the time do not worry about being skinny or not skinny. 
there are definitely many of people of weight or or who have who are or have pounds on them who play leads in numerous TV series and movies and what have you. So maybe we're, we're still a young country and we'll get there someday, but I don't think it should be vilified as you stated. Yeah. I, I, I think all these issues are way more complicated than the sound bites would lead us to believe. Yes. You know what I mean? Because I, I think women have been objectified. Yes. They have been presented with terrible, uh, body images they right. have you know and they have been subjected to behavior from men and young mm-hmm. men mm-hmm. that that w- just as we said we were taught it was okay yeah you know now i was a shy kid who wasn't aggressively <laughs> doing anything so i didn't do these things right but like you think about like the the kavanaugh hearings yeah, and what those yeah. stories were those are animal house stories right you know, and how much behavior did you see in high school and, or college that was in those directions? Yeah. You know, where guys are drinking and, you know, we knew a guy, I won't say what his name was, but we knew him. I'm, I'm going to say uh, Tom. His yeah. nickname was Naked Tom because he dropped his pants all the time. His That's, name wasn't really Tom. I changed it. But like, right. and that was hilarious. But maybe it wasn't hilarious. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, you know, because I don't know that there wasn't one woman at the party that thought that was was really disturbed by it and yeah. offended by it. And, yeah. and because the behavior was crazy behavior, right. Right. you know. And so I, I think these issues are, you know, I think, you know, I'm going to go back to where I started from. I dislike censorship. I believe that art needs to explore all the nooks and crannies of, hum- of human behavior and when you look at human behavior, there's a lot of weird shit in there. There really is. And I don't think we should avoid it. You know, the other movie we didn't talk about is American Beauty. You know? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's all up in this. And my right. feelings about the, that movie, uh, which I liked when I saw it, my mm-hmm. feelings about it now, both because of the subject matter and because of Kevin Spacey, is like, oh, yeah. you know? Yeah. But because, and because this is the thing. This is a middle-aged guy obsessing about a high school girl. Yep. Who we then see, you know, topless in the movie. Right. And it is a beautiful sexualized images of her. Mm-hmm. And while we might, and we like the, the main character. Yeah. Lester so Burn. what, what message is that telling us? Right, right, right. He's purposely constructed to be someone we cheer for. And then seeing him, cons- and it's certainly a film made for men. It is not made for women. Cause uh, um, Annette Bening is played as a shrill nag mm who's cheating on the main character, her aspirations to be successful in her life and achieve a certain level of economic um, mobility or economic status is seen as negative by Lester Burnham, who is the rebel, you know, uh, you know, destroying all these kinds of things. But he's also creeping after uh, his daughter's friend and his daughter and the friend call him out on it until that fateful night and you know there, there something else happens there because that young girl is also railing against the plasticity of beauty the plasticity of being wanted by men and initially she finds power in it but then once she veers behind the curtain and realizes there's nothing behind that power but dudes just wanting to have sex with her there's no real emotional connection or depth to that that's her journey to struggle with as she embraces that as a young woman coming into her own as well so you know i i I get issues with it but i think there's still stuff to explore there yeah i mean i haven't seen it in forever my memory is it's a it's a good movie yeah Yeah. other than plastic bag guy (laughs) i was just gonna say (laughs) (laughs) well well, and, and the thing is is like has a 
a in general relatively good ordinary man becomes sexually attracted to an underage girl in history yeah yes shit happens you yeah. know like we can't well, yeah 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 i mean we saw the jennifer lopez movie that just happened the boy next door from a year or two ago that's her having sexual relations with a high school kid Mm. Um, and that was trumpeted as, yeah, you know, this is, uh, you know, that's right. An older woman getting with a younger man. And I get it. I get it. And I'm cool with it. But, you know, is that how we balance? Is that how we uh, bring the scale back to the middle is having a bunch of films where older women go after younger guys? Then great. Go to it. And we're back in the middle. Then what do we do from this point forward? That's what I want to know. Well, this is, and I know this conversation is going on forever, but I know, but this is, again, one of the weird things is that there's always been a a completely different set of standards for men and women. And we've talked a lot about the physical standards for women that are so much more severe, but also like in, if you hear the story of an adult male teacher having sex with a young girl student, it's like, ugh, horrible. Right, right. I know that I've heard, you know, like there are times where the the young boy student has the hot teacher. That's like a male fantasy. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so like the whole perception of it is totally different. And and frankly, I know two guys who lost their virginity to women who are much older, like mm. at a very young age, you wow. know, and it's like and when when they tell have told the story, it's like, no, it's good. And listening to the story, I'm like, ooh, it's <laughs> not, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, All right. Well, there we are. <laughs> All right. Well, Peter Bylone, I hope we answered your question. I hope we, uh, you know, dived into this in a way that you feel was uh, respectful and uh, layered and complex and nuanced and what have you as much as we can in the cinephiles short. And I hope you don't mind that we saved your uh, 42 conversation for another short down the road. Uh, But uh, this one certainly, as you can tell, uh, sparked a lot of conversation between us, a lot of different points of views addressing this situation. We hope we also... We hope we haven't offended anybody with our points of views and, and would be willing to have open conversations with anyone who felt that maybe we were a bit uh, off the mark here on this one. So uh, we thought we'd tackle it and challenge ourselves, and we hope we addressed it in a respectful, um, intelligent way. All right, there we go. All right, well, thanks, everybody, for listening to this uh, Cinephile Short. For Steve Morris, I'm John Roca, And for the Cinephiles, thanks so much. And we'll talk to you next time with another brand-new episode of the Cinephile Shorts. Cinephile Shorts.